Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is Randy Slaw, who is a producer and composer. He's worked with artists such as Architects, Sleeping with Sirens, Periphery, Tesseract, Devin Townsend, and Four Years Strong, as well as music for television series on Netflix, CBS, NBC, ABC, Hulu, Discovery, ESPN, VH1, and MTV. He's also done work for video games and all kinds of campaigns. I mean, this is one prolific dude. I hope you enjoy this episode. Here goes. Randy Slaw, welcome to the URM podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Excited to talk to you. Did you always want to be a composer or is that something that just kind of happened along the way? Because I, I, we have like a mutual friend, uh, you know, Jesse Zaretti, who is doing very well for himself in composition. And I know that that's not the way he started. The way he started was as a guitar player in a metal band. And I find that a lot of people who do production or composition, who have a metal background, they didn't necessarily always start that way. They just found that to be their calling eventually. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been creative. Honestly, back in grade school, I initially wanted to be, like, I I was more into drawing and wanted to be in, like, my initial sort of career goals were to be like a comic illustration kind of like, like work for like, you know, Disney Pixar or something like that. In high school, I started, well, I guess I took piano lessons growing up. I've always kind of been into music. I picked up guitar in high school, kind of taught myself. Some buddies and I, you know, we played in like a just a hardcore screamo band and we didn't really want to go through the trouble of, you know, going to a studio, having to just, you know, do one take and have it be printed. I wanted to have a little more control with like what we were creating. So Got myself some cheap, you know, recording gear. Started kind of teaching myself audio production, and uh, just over the years, started kind of you know recording friends' projects and just stuff here and there. Like ten years ago, I recorded like a Christmas album, just kind of random projects like that. And then, so this was back in probably like initially like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I've been a huge fan of Periphery for years since their, you know, MySpace days, and uh, started going to some of their early early shows. Connected with the guys, you know, just 
started hanging out on the tour bus, just kind of becoming friends with them. And I saw that Misha had posted way back in the day, I think it was uh, his like SoundClick account. He would post demos of upcoming songs. I remember that. Yeah, way back in the day. I think it was Have a Blast. It had just like a like a keyboard kind of MIDI violin in the intro. And I was just kind of thinking, oh, you know, that's that's cool, but it'd be a shame if the final version just ended up with kind of MIDI strings. Not that there's anything wrong with MIDI strings, but I just thought, you know, what the hell? I'll just, let me just message Misha and just kind of go on an, out on a limb. And I just kind of, you know, DM'd him and just said, hey, you know, if you want, you know, I, I heard the intro of Have a Blast. If you want, I, I've got the resources to record that with a real violin. And he was like, oh, dude, that'd be awesome. And I was, it was kind of a, kind of a, what would you call it? Um, say yes, then figure out how to do it later. Because at the time, I, again, I, I'd done some, some recording projects here and there, but nothing of that magnitude and nothing of that complexity. Cause it's, it's a, I read sheet music, but not, I'm not overly classically trained. It's something that I've, I've learned as I've gone, but at the time it was, it was a little bit, it was an intimidating project. So I found a studio, a local place. I went to um, the music department of the college I was going to talk to the violin professor, found a killer violinist. We got the part recorded and uh, turned out great. The, the band loved it. Um, that was sort of my first, and it was more like I sort of found a random opportunity to work with a band that I like more than I was like seeking out this, you know, I'm going to be like this orchestrator for a metal bands. You just created your own opportunity basically more than anything. Kind of. Yeah. And then after that, I think it was like a year later, Misery Signals was recording up in Idaho where, uh, near where I was going to school. And it just kind of right place, right time. They needed a bunch of orchestration. I showed them the periphery song. And they had me come to the studio, work with them in person. And then um, I called the prom queen needed stuff. And eventually it spiraled to, you know, Devin Townsend, Architects, just intervals, all this stuff. And it it kind of started turning into where I was like, okay, this is working. I could probably do this. You know, like it, it just sort of like happened organically, if that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And what's interesting is I feel like that was the same story for Jesse. And I also feel like this is the same story for a lot of people who got into this. By this, I mean making stuff that sounds cool in heavy music, uh, whether it means like self-producing like Misha did or it means like, you know, Kurt Ballou becoming, you know, the dude in his area with a specific sound or you guys, you and Jesse like composing. Like I feel like this somewhat figure it out as it goes, not necessarily DIY, but just throw yourself into it mentality is kind of what I hear a lot. And I mean, it is kind of how it worked for me as well. It's like a very familiar story. And what I think more than anything is interesting to me is that you did not know how you were going to pull it off when you offered it, but you offered it anyways. <laughs> and that's one of those things that, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of listeners and URM students who are too scared to put themselves out there like that. And I get it because uh, on the one hand, you don't want to be delusional and overpromise things uh, and be known as someone who just talks a big game and then can't deliver it. But then at the same time, you have to have enough confidence that you can figure it out, that you will figure it out. For sure. I think a lot of it's knowing your limitations because uh, last year, Pablo from Chelsea Grin hit me up to record some drums for a for a, some session work he was doing. And I just know myself, I I have no experience in, in drum tracking. That's sort of not my field at all. So 
I referred him to a stu- you know a local studio guy that I know I trust and you know went in sat on the session and ha- and like hung with him but it's just sort of knowing like I guess knowing your limitations long story short well yeah when, whenever when I was producing bands I would always tell the vocalists if what you need is help with lyrics I am not the guy I can make the vocal sound awesome can be great with the vocal arrangement even tweaking the parts but uh, when it comes to lyrics you do not want my help and I don't want to help like that's not even if I wanted to. I would do a shitty job. No, totally. It's just not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So, so knowing your your general skill set, and uh, even if it's something you haven't done, like knowing that it's something that would be within your capabilities. So, yeah. And that's kind of it. Has sort of evolved from initially. I started with this niche of taking bands' existing arrangements, recording them with real strings, using you know college students. So it'd be more affordable than your average, you know, symphony you would hire. To put it mildly. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and aside from recording strings, I, I do a lot of other kind of subgenres of production. I, what I what I really have gotten into more lately is just programming specifically, doing just kind of electronic stuff. Like I love, you know, the score for Tenet or a lot of just cool, like cinematic electronic stuff. So just did some stuff with uh, Sleeping With Sirens, the Amity Affliction, new stuff for Barry Tomorrow. That's kind of more more in that that wheelhouse on the new sleeping with sirens we did stuff that's ranging from like some heavier film trailers type stuff to like more hip-hop beat production and i think that stuff is kind of fun it's uh i'm super adhd so i uh i like having different challenges different projects you know day to day instead of just if i had just a you know a desk job where i'm clocking in and crunching numbers every day i think i'd i'd hate my life and this sort of uh what i do is I mean, for all intents and purposes, I'm like a full-time freelancer. I just have my hand in a lot of pots, whether it's working with artists or working on, you know, music for TV shows or or commercials. Um, I've got some corporate audio gigs I do. So just kind of uh, keeping yourself busy and keeps my skills sharp too. Honestly, a lot of what I've been doing for TV and film type stuff has really uh, expanded my production skills because I've been working remotely with this this company called Full Clip Music. And it's owned by these two producers who worked with, um, so their names are uh, John Pregler and BJ Perry. And they, I know they worked with uh, Tyler Smith on the last couple I Prevail records. I think they've worked with like Skillet and Escape the Fate, kind of that scene. But they've kind of started their own production library for uh, composers to kind of get their music on TV shows, commercials. And uh, a lot of the projects are like, you know, we need hip-hop beats for VH1, or we need, you know, some country cues for CMT or whatever. And it's just kind of a, you know, Discovery Channel needs some, like, harder rock songs, or we need some metal cues for WWE, et cetera. That's really pushed myself to kind of just sharpen my skills with, for example, I've never produced country before, but I feel like I'm, I'm pretty confident and I can make some killer, like, instrumental cues in that genre. So let's talk a little bit about um, getting your head wrapped around a genre that might not be what you listen to and also something that you're unfamiliar with. So name me a genre that you don't listen to that you might get asked to work with. Would it be country? I don't know what you listen to. No, 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 totally. And I, to be honest, I'm I'm sort of an omnivore. Yeah, but there's got to be something. <laughs> Look, I, I understand being an omnivore musically, but there's got to be something that's like you will never listen to. Like, for instance, with me, it's ska. Like, you would have to put a gun in my head to get me to listen to ska. For sure. And it would have to be loaded. Yeah, totally. It'd have to be a pretty intense threat. Yeah, and then it's a question. It's like, listen to ska or end it all. And uh, I'd have to debate that for a second. 
I respect that. Thank you. Yeah, let's use Scott, for example. Like, I listen to, you know, a couple songs, like, you know, Less Than Jake, that kind of stuff, or like Old Goldfinger, but... I guess if it was something, so for example, probably one of the weirdest requests I've gotten for TV was for uh, this show, Very Cavallari, and they needed, it was like hip hop country, like they called it hick hop. <laughs> I just kind of, like they sent That's some great. references and I was just like, you know, what the hell even is this? So I uh, I listened to the references, kind of just sort of analyzed, okay, this is like, you know, what, what are the elements that make this? And it's like, okay, it's hip hop beats, 808s, and then like, you know, banjo, fiddle, whatever. So I just kind of, kind of started just like, you know, I'd start with what I was more familiar with, you know, build kind of like a percussion uh, bed and just start kind of riffing instruments on top of that and turned out okay. Um, you know, I, I, I got some placements with it and stuff, but it's, uh, I guess it's just sort of a, a lot of trial and error and sort of like, you know, just sort of seeing what works and what sounds okay and just kind of going for it. But did you listen to any country in order to get your head around that, like in order to make it more authentic or was it just kind of your impression of what country might be? Like when, when writing the banjo parts, for instance, did you listen to banjo music in order to understand how banjo, you know, what your, what your typical fare is for banjo playing in that for style? Sure. Or did you just kind of draw from your memory banks that you've heard you know, you heard this at some point in your life and just have some impression and just kind of went off of that. A little bit of both. A lot of the projects that they send for for TV stuff, like they'll send like a list of references. Like here's this, oh, perfect. you know, this Taylor Swift song or this, uh, you know, Kane Brown song or whatever. And I'll, I'll kind of like skim those and just kind of get the general vibe. And then just sort of, I'll just kind of start riffing. Um, and that's one thing I, I actually feel like I'm, I'm uh, grateful to, be pretty good at is I I've realized one thing that that I is one of my strengths is I have no shortage of just riffs. When you say riffs, what do you mean? Like instrumental hooks, just like like little licks. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, no, no, it ma it makes sense. So like my definition of a riff, the reason I want to point this out is because we've got a lot of metal guitar players oh, listening, absolutely. and so when they think of a riff, <laughs> they think of you know a heavy guitar riff. But totally. really, uh, I think of a riff as a repeating hook, like a repeating hook that's not the main vocal melody, but like it's a repeating instrumental hook and so you know guitar riff that's a good one is basically that it's a hook that's played over and over and over and over and over again and is usually an accompaniment to a vocal for sure yeah that makes sense so like for example i got kind of more into like the tv film licensing music thing because of a lot of the work i'd done in metal like the end goal for me would be like, I don't know if you know who uh, Ludwig Granson is. He's the guy who did... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Fuck yeah, he's fucking amazing. Dude, where he's at career-wise, I would love to do... So, he, obviously, you know, like, he works on killer TV film scores. Mandalorian, Black Panther, Tenet, etc. But then he also has a hand in, you know, killer artist production for Charles Gambino, Adele, Travis Scott, etc. So, I would love to have a hand in kind of both, both fields. You know, working with, you know, artists like... Post Malone or whatever, and then having a hand in, you know, scoring the next, I don't know, Star Wars or Tarantino film or, I don't know. That's one thing where I can't really pick one or the other. I love working with artists. I grew up listening to metal. I, I love pop, hip hop, just a, a, a variety of stuff. I just did a song with Yellow Wolf, the rapper, and it was kind of just sort of like a random thing, but kind of a cool random project. But then before I listened to anything, my, you know, when I was five or six years old, you know, my first stuff I got into was, you know, John Williams scores with Jurassic Park and Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. So uh, definitely film scores, video game scores, TV stuff. Like that's 
that's absolutely where like that's been a passion of mine for my whole life. So that it's definitely something I uh, and I've scored a couple, you know, short films. Um, I'm signed on to do a feature length film that has been delayed with COVID. And uh, right now it's kind of in limbo hell. So we'll see what happens with it. But uh, I'm definitely looking to get more into the you know, film scoring world as well. And that's something, you know, Jesse and I have partnered up with. We want to do a lot of uh, trailer music, video games, just kind of more that field. Because uh, honestly, I mean, that's as far as this, making a su- sustainable career, like long term, that's the kind of stuff that pays the bills. And also, I mean, it's still, it's fulfilling. I've, I've sort of figured out that my values when it comes to projects I take on, uh, it's really three things. Like number one, it's got to pay the bills. Number two, it's got to be a project that will look good on my portfolio with a means to, you know, bring in more work eventually. And then number three, at this point, I try and take on projects where it's going to be, you know, good people to work with. And it's not going to be a client who's a pain in the ass. Those three things, did it take you a while to figure out that you need to meet those three criteria in order to be happy with what you're working with? Yes, definitely. Because I, I think, especially earlier on, I would take I would take on projects, and I'm sure you've seen the Venn diagram where everyone wants, you yes. know, cheap, free, whatever. Or, yeah, cheap. Cheap and fast. Quick, fast. And good. Yeah, and then, <laughs> exactly. That's the one. So initially, I said yes to the impossible middle ground of all three of those, where, you know, it's like insane deadlines. I guess at this point, like I'll take on, if it covers two of those, like for example, the last periphery record I worked on, my cut. So from what I quoted them at, the amount that I ended up pocketing wasn't a ton, but I knew that, you know, being featured on their documentary, all that stuff would lead to much more work down the road. I'll take that into account knowing that I know we all, it's kind of a dirty word, but we, how much exposure I would get from, you know, working on this project. It's only a dirty word because so many scammers use it to trick gullible musicians. But in reality, when used properly in the proper context, it matters. It is very important. If the exposure is actually real, it matters. It can be more valuable than money in some cases. For sure. And if you're playing long game, a lot of times it will lead to almost like residual money down the road. It's been a lot of kind of trial and error figuring out what type of projects are fulfilling to me and what will be sustainable long-term as a career. Yeah, just kind of kind of figuring out as you go. You just said, if you're playing long game? Oh, I'm saying for, for musicians who are looking to do this, I've actually had a lot of people hit me up and just be like, you know, dude, you know, I want to get into music production. I want to get into TV stuff. You know, what do you recommend? And I think there's, you know, I've had some people hit me up who have a genuine drive with this, but a lot of people have sort of like a get rich quick mentality. Yes. I know there's a quote, I can't remember who said this, but it's a lot of musicians want career level results for hobby level commitment. Yes. And you definitely have to play long game. I've actually said that many times. Oh yeah. Might've been me. (laughs) Yeah. I I could be quoting you. That's true. (laughs) I always joke that music is a get rich slow scheme and uh, you definitely have to just, at least if you want to build an authentic career. And like, for me, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, over the years, it's been initially, you got to do a bunch of kind of cold calls, cold emails, going to shows, you know, networking with clients, adding value first, which eventually leads to eventually leads to good word of mouth, referrals, et cetera, and just kind of kind of builds organically. I agree with you completely. I think that if you're not playing the long game, you're fucking up. Nothing good happens quickly in music. Now, people can hear this and will point out Pearl Jam getting signed within six months of becoming a band. And, you know, of course there's outliers, same way that there's people who win the lottery in, you know, 
play the Powerball and fucking win $200 million. But that's just so rare. It's It's so rare that it's statistically insignificant. You shouldn't plan on that sort of thing. If it happens, cool, but you shouldn't plan on it uh, because that's not the way it works for the vast, vast, vast majority of people in music. I think in music, you have to be thinking long game uh, with every decision that you make. There is no such thing as the short game if you want any sort of actual career level results, in in my opinion. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it's working smart too. Honestly, I I know uh, Finn McKinty posted this a couple months ago and, and he said something about like we always underestimate especially when you're starting out how much outreach you should be doing whether that's cold emails whether that's you know going to networking events etc even to this day my career is launched enough to where i i get a lot of inbound referrals or, or you know return clients repeat customers but i don't do this as much as i should but i'll still you know occasionally i'll i'll go on a it's kind of funny i'll, I'll just to, to kind of find a a targeted audience of artists that would be a good fit for for my services. I'll go on featuredx.com, like the website where it's, uh, you can hire vocalists or guitarists from certain bands, do like a feature on your song. I'll narrow it down to, you know, metalcore or gent. I'll kind of sift through, find artists who who seem like, you know, seem like they're, they're working on some awesome stuff. And I'll just kind of just send a bunch of, a bunch of emails out. And I've had a lot of success doing that specifically just because there's a higher chance of those bands being familiar with. Where's the line though? The reason I'm saying where's the line, and I agree with you, um, I do a lot of cold outreach. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Nail the Mix, but I have to book that every single month. It's been six years now. And now with Riff Hard, I have to book that every single month. I have to do a lot of cold outreach. There's a lot of people that I still don't know. And it works, not always, and it works. However, we all know that there are some people out there who punish the hell out of out of you and will ruin their own opportunities because of the amount of outreach that they do. So my question is, where's the line? Or how do you gauge if you're going too far with it? For all intents and purposes, it's putting out like a job application. I know Brian Hood, he always says that uh, marketing is getting the right message to the right person at the right time. So I think a big thing is it's a deliberate, authentic connection and not just like, okay, here's this list of 5,000 artists or, or 5,000, you know, production companies or advertising agencies. I'm just going to, you know, spam email every single one of them. And to the point where like, if you get a response, you won't even know who the hell you're talking to. So I think keeping it deliberate and personal is still like, that's going to get you farther. I feel like 20 deliberate cold emails are more successful than like 500 random ones. Yes. Keeping more focused and uh, authentic. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, how are you supposed to talk to people if uh, that you don't know if you don't do that? I mean, sometimes you can get introduced, but (laughs) if you don't know them and there's no one to introduce you, you got to just do it. That's a good point. At the end of the day, I mean, having a personal intro like that is going to be a hundred times more effective than like I'll do cold emails as, as a last resort or as kind of like a necessary evil of keeping your business afloat and, and all that stuff. But for example, I'm good buddies with uh Keshev from 
Sky Harbor, Keshavdar, just just a while back. And this is a project that ended up not working out, but I they toured with Deftones a while back. I knew they were working on the new album. I just asked Keshav, I was like, hey, I don't know if you feel comfortable with this, but you know, I, I'd love to connect with uh, with Steph Carpenter. Um, and he was like, oh, absolutely. Let me let me give you a let me give you an email intro. And he uh, he linked us up. Steph's awesome. We had a great conversation. I ended up talking with them at Nam later that year. It ended up being where like they they didn't need. The services I was offering on their album, which also definitely happens, having an authentic introduction is much better than if I were to like, you know, just cold email Deftones management. And, you know, there's a, a much lower, lower chance that, that I would get a response from that. That's just kind of an example. Yeah, it's because you've been vetted. Exactly. Totally. Or, uh, I mean, best case scenario is, I think it was, you know, six, seven years ago, I reached out to the Amity Affliction just because they were kind of a, a band I'd, I'd listened to a lot. Kind of did like a, hey, you know, my name is Randy Slaw. Here are my here are my services I offer, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I don't think I got a response from them back then. But just this past year, uh, Dan Brown messaged me and he was like, hey, dude, you know, I've heard you do really good work. We're looking for some orchestration, piano kind of stuff on our new singles we're working on. And uh, just having it come from them. Like, uh, I know Joey Sturr just said this, like you always want, like when you're producing an artist, I mean, and this applies with anything, like you always want it to be their idea. It's more successful if you can have it be their idea versus like shoving it in their face. Like having Dan reach out to me, it was it was kind of much... Fruitful. It was much more fruitful. Exactly. Much more fruitful uh, interaction for sure. And and Dan's awesome. It was really, really cool getting to work with them on a few songs. We should be working on a full length next spring, summer. But yeah, just keeping busy. And, and again, back to the uh, hobby level commitment for career level results. Like I have had to treat this like a day job. Coming up on two years at this point where I just got, you know, an office space that I'm renting out that I've converted into my own commercial studio. Like I'll record local clients. I'll record string players here and stuff. But the majority of what I do is just remote work. And I'll just kind of come in here, get on my desk, kind of clock in, treat it like I'm at work, and then come back home, treat it like I'm at home, I'm present. Versus, uh, you know, in in past years, I would kind of uh, just be working out of our spare bedroom. And that sort of makes, at least for me personally, that kind of made a weird, uh, like a work-life boundaries issue where, you know, so-and-so needs revision. Oh, let me just pause this. Let me go do this real quick. And then, oh, you know, this person needs another revision. And it would just sort of be like, I'm always on call. Whereas now it's like, okay, I've got my office hours. I'm at the studio, come back home. I'm present. That's sort of been something I've had to adjust and, uh, you know, kind of just treat it like a job. And at the same time, you're your own boss. So like if I, I mean, you, you have to be ruthlessly self-disciplined as well. Cause I could just stay at home and play video games. I don't have a boss hounding me to get this stuff done. I do have clients who they'll message me and stuff. We all know that person yeah. who, uh, ignores their clients and ghosts them and it's not because they're actually busy they're just playing video games or something yeah dude it's just being responsible being efficient with your time and just uh treating it like a job yeah if you're going to be doing a lot of work and high pressure work it's very very important for the quality of your work and for your sanity to impose some sort of structure on yourself otherwise you could just you know, you could do things like not work, play video games, end up close to the deadline, cram stuff, go nuts, lose your mind with <laughs> stress, piss off your wife, like all kinds of stuff. We see that over and over again. Whereas I've noticed that the people who have a very disciplined schedule are very, very consistent with it. They know when they're done working, they stop working, except for in emergencies or special occasions, you know, they have their hours and uh, that seems to work better. Like, there, it leads to less burnout. Um, 
less anxiety. I mean, there's already plenty of anxiety to go with this field anyways. You don't want to be adding to it, I think. You don't want to be making it harder than it already is. And routine solves for lots of those problems. Absolutely. And it's it's been, I mean, it's something I've I've grown to create this lifestyle, but it's it's been a lot of kind of trial and error and having those stressful, overwhelming, crazy, you know, months where I'm disappointing everyone and, and biting off more than I can chew. And uh, one thing that's also helped with that is I, uh, I've recently hired two assistants to help with kind of more, uh, more of the busy work, you know, with uh, editing or session prep kind of stuff. And that's really helped me to be able to take on more projects. Uh, just, you know, being able to, to not, I know with, uh, with, hire, with hiring employees, you have to, for lack of a better word, fire yourself from certain tasks. For lack of a better word, I'm, I'm a control freak. I'm very passionate about the quality of the work that I put out. And I've got some killer assistants who do amazing work and they've, they've kind of helped it to where, you know, I still have my hand on the, on the creative side of things, but a lot of the technical stuff will be a lot smoother, you know, just having, having a team of people instead of just being a one man business. And it's allowed me to where, you know, last week I went out of town for my brother's wedding and, uh, I had just, you know, an urgent, um, urgent project that got thrown, thrown, thrown into my lap that had like a super tight deadline, um, and I, I had my laptop with me, so I was able to do sort of like a, some remote work. But my uh, my assistant kind of handled a lot of the bulk work with that. And I was able to sort of – something that would have been like a three- or four-hour project, I was able to get it done in probably a half hour, which really helps with that kind of stuff. Again, treating it like a business. The goal for 2022 is to scale things up even further, take on bigger and better projects. Having a couple employees really helps with that. I, I know you've got a couple assistants, and I'm sure it's helped you with your workflow as well. Yeah, I mean, there's only – so many hours in a day um, and there's way more stuff to do than there's enough time for. And there's just certain things that are better served by me doing. And there's certain other things that it doesn't matter if I don't do them. As long as they're done well, it doesn't matter if I'm not the one doing it. Exactly. I know uh, Will Putney, John Feldman, even Hans Zimmer, like Kanye West, like they all kind of have this this setup with their productions where like they still have it's still like their stamp their sound but it's uh it's a team of people just you know making it kind of kind of run smoother and quicker hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes 
everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. There comes a point where if you're working at a certain scale, it's a myth to think that you can lone wolf it. You hear about stuff like that because it makes for like cool myths, cool stories, um, like this, like the myth of Trent Reznor being a, a one-man show kind of thing. Absolutely. It's just a myth. People like to idolize stars, um, whether it's a star producer or star composer or just a star like a Trent Reznor. People like to deify and idolize them and it's easier for them to i don't know for some reason to think that like it all came from that one person that they hold in this high regard it's a little harder for them to understand that there's an entire team i guess maybe because the music is seems less personal to them or something i don't know there's yeah it's kind of a there's weird... all kinds of weird weird psychology behind it but uh everyone working at a high level is doing it with a team. I'm sorry. I don't know anyone who isn't or know of anyone who isn't. Totally. Even, I mean, Trent Rosenor, like he, I mean, he's got Atticus Ross tag teaming all his recent stuff. Yeah, exactly. I've heard people criticize Hans Zimmer because it's like, oh, you know, his assistants do all his work for him. But like when he first did the the first Pirates of the Caribbean, I remember hearing that he was in the middle of scoring The Last Samurai. So it was just kind of a weird timing. He wanted to take it on. So he spent an evening just, you know, coming up with all the themes, all the like the actual you know, motifs and stuff, and then send it to his assistant to essentially score the film, take those and kind of spread those themes out throughout the movie. So it was still like his sound and like his creative touch that is kind of irreplaceable, but like a lot of the the time-consuming stuff that could be, you know, it allowed him to take on more projects. And and I, you know, again, you know, like his, his score with uh, Blade Runner 2049, he tag-teamed that with uh, Benjamin Wallfish. And you can still hear Hans's sound you know, from like his his new score with Dune, there's a lot of similarities. Um, and you hear a lot of Benjamin's Wallfish's stuff as well. We almost get this as musicians, we get this this ego and, and we we sort of want to, you know, when you're doing like a self, like a solo album, you want to make sure, you know, I did this whole, you know, engineered, mixed, mastered, every you know, played every instrument kind of thing. But in my experience, I, I a lot of projects will be a tighter ship when you have, you know, a team of specialists. Like for yes. example, the the uh, Sleeping with Sirens record that I just worked on. So it was produced by Andrew Bayless. Awesome, awesome producer. Love working with him. We've done probably a dozen projects with him at this point. He does everything really well. He's a killer programmer. He's a killer, you know, guitar production, vocal production. That was kind of a thing where, you know, I got to fly out to Nashville and kind of be a part of the process. And I was the guy who was doing programming on the record and got to just hyper-focus on all of that, do some just killer, just cool sounds. They had a couple of people they outsourced for songwriting you know uh nick furlong who's done stuff with like avici a lot of john feldman stuff julian como who's uh he did a lot of like the background harmonies vocal production editing all that kind of stuff and uh zach stravini mixed it and it, it allowed bayless to kind of not wear so many hats and kind of spread himself thin which sometimes affects the quality of everything and there are some people who do it great like i know uh eric ron 
killer producer. I know he likes to do everything in-house and that that works super well. I think just in my experience, I like to be a part of projects where it's, uh, yeah, everyone's kind of specialized like that. So it's kind of case by case. You know, even in a band, if a band has a primary songwriter or something. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, there's still the rest of the band there. It's not like the primary songwriter, say the primary songwriter is a guitarist and that's all they do is play guitar. I mean, somebody else is uh, doing those vocals. Somebody else is doing those drums. It's not like, you know, they may have been the primary songwriter for the song. It might have their touch on it, but, uh, you know, they're not doing everything. Absolutely. They don't have the skills to do everything. And Misha Mansour is a perfect example because he, I mean, we all know from his early demos, like he full on guitar production, he can mix master. He, he literally plays drums amazingly well. And I think in the more recent work, it's a lot more of a collaboration where there's, you know, songs fully written mostly by, you know, Jake and Mark and, and you know, even Spencer writes a lot of guitar stuff too. And and it's it's much more of a uh, a collaborative thing. And in my, I mean, I love old Periphery, but I feel like their more recent records are, I don't know if they're more musically interesting, but they are definitely musically interesting. Like you can hear a lot of different approaches kind of coming together. And uh, I feel like that almost turns into better better results. And again, like with uh, with the Sleeping With Sirens record, like people don't like the idea of outso- outsourcing songwriting or or doing co-writes, you know, collaborating with other songwriters. But some of those songs, we had, uh, you know, like a killer chorus written by someone else. And then like Kellen r- would write like the verses or, or vice versa. Or I just find it so interesting to see different people's approaches to the same task. You get completely different results based on their experiences or their um, their backgrounds. Kind of a random example is, I don't know if you heard the new Metallica cover album that came out this past year. I sure did, and was surprised that some of those songs were actually awesome. Yeah, totally. And it's just, for me, it was so weird to see. So there are like, you know, a dozen different versions of Nothing Else Matters. And it was so cool to hear, okay, like, what would Chris Stapleton do? You know, what's his, based on his background and his style, like, how would he approach Nothing Else Matters? And then how would... Phoebe Bridgers approach that completely different style, you know? So it's, uh, I always think that like getting, getting a variety of people with different backgrounds to, uh, approach the same task will almost always get, you know, completely different results. And, uh, kind of an example of that is I'm a co-writer, co-producer in, it's not really a band. It's more of a, a remote project called White Moth Black Butterfly. And it is with Dan Tompkins from Tesseract, Kesha from Sky Harbor, this other singer from the UK named Jordan, uh, Matt Christensen, one of, one of my good buddies here in Salt Lake. We just get such a different style having, you know, Dan and Jordan are up in the UK. You know, Dan's got a, a big background in kind of prog metal and all that stuff. Keshev, you know, obviously like he's he's done a bunch of stuff with Sky Harbor, but then he does a bunch of like Bollywood film scoring and, and kind of brings a totally different approach. Whereas like I'm here in the US, I work on, you know, a lot of metal records, but then like if we want to do sort of like a, more electronic pop type type track. Like I'll bring some weird, you know, almost like like Kanye West production or like some some stuff that like, you know, Dan or Kesha would never think of or vice versa. Like I just think it's always cool kind of bringing in more more heads into a project, more creative opinions. You can definitely have too many cooks in the kitchen. So it's, it's good to sort of delegate roles and kind of tag team stuff. Well, th- there's got to be someone who sets the vision. Yeah, long story short, in my experience, I think, you know, team efforts usually end up with cooler results than if it's just sort of one do it all kind of kind of thing. So, yeah, totally. Now, one thing that 
you said in the pre-interview that I thought was cool, because I agree with it, is that sometimes projects don't work out. Sometimes what you did will get replaced or it won't come together or you'll be in the project and it just won't work. And that the best way to not get too bummed on that is to just have a lot going on. So you don't, you really don't have the time to let it bother you. Absolutely. You know, I always try to have, you know, a number of projects going at the same time. I think anyone who has shot for building a a career in in music or anything creative, you know, kind of at the, the freelance route, you are going to have a lot of successes. You're going to have a lot of, of failures and a lot of, you know, ones that got away. And again, you know, I mentioned the the Deftones record and it, it wasn't it wasn't a matter of, you know, I wasn't good enough or, you know, you, you can always get in your head with imposter syndrome, but it was definitely just more of like a not the right fit. And that's kind of the way with, you know, I think we, uh, you can knock on a bunch of doors, but like there's, again, like the, like the Brian Hood quote, you know, Marketing is the right message to the right person at the right time. It's just finding those right people and the right timing, honestly. So I did an audition back in 2017. I think it was right after uh, Cervini had left John Feldman's studio. And Feldman posted on Instagram. He said, hey, we're looking to hire like a, uh, an assistant producer at the studio. Send your resume to this email. I just figured, you know, what the heck? Let me just, I'll just send something in. And I got a response from his assistant saying, hey, you know, Randy, we, we listened to your stuff. We like what we heard. We'd love to do an audition with you. And it was... Uh, it was one of the tracks for the Fever 333 record they're working on, um, South, Side, South Side of Inglewood. And they just sent vocals only and just said, hey, you know, build a song around this. And I don't know if you're familiar with with uh, with their stuff or that song, but it's they're, they're kind of more of like a modern Rage Against the Machine, kind of heavier yeah. rock rap type stuff. That song in particular is more, at least vocally, it's it's much more subdued, kind of low energy. And initially when they sent it, I was like, hey, this, like this, like this almost sounds like it could be like a Macklemore song. So I, I started kind of building, you know, piano around it. I, I had it build up to some more heavy guitars later in the in the in the arrangement, just because that's kind of what they were what they were doing. And uh, sent it to them. Feldman said he liked it. You know, we hopped on the phone, kind of talked about doing some more stuff. And uh, long story short, uh, that specific thing. I guess this is kind of a tangent, but also kind of relevant. I uh, I started talking to some. You know, it, it was sort of where it started kind of going going forward and I was I was like okay like what I you know what would working for Feldman really look like you know because you know obviously you know I've I've been a humongous fan of his stuff since you know 2002 2003 like a lot of his earlier story of the year the use like a lot of those records were highly influential in my my formative guitar playing music production years especially with everything Feldman does with live strings and all this stuff I talked to a few people and they were just like oh yeah dude you know he again not talking shit about Feldman, but like, I think just a lot of producers run this type of ship where like his assistants will work, you know, 16 hour days, zero days off and just kind of go through the ringer at first, which again is, for example, if I were, if it were 10 years ago, I would kill for an opportunity with that. You know, I would, I would just take that in a heartbeat. I would, I would just, you know, slave over that. Know your limits, right? Yeah. At this point, you know, being married, I I was just kind of thinking, okay, that would definitely put some strain on my marriage. If I were living at the studio, never saw my wife, uprooted her whole career path and just had her go to LA where she doesn't know anybody. And a lot of the projects I had going on with, you know, architects, periphery, all that kind of stuff would have to go to the wayside. So I could just focus full, full, full time on Feldman's productions, which again, I love his stuff. I love those, those things. It was kind of where I like weighed the pros and cons. Like, do I want to be an employee at a studio like this? Or do do I want to keep doing my own 
thing, which I'm more in control of. It's kind of more something that I can scale up myself. I can take on whatever projects I want to work on. And uh, it ended up kind of not really fizzling off, but just sort of uh, kind of turning into something where where I, I think they ended up going with someone else. The final song, they scrapped my production, ended up working with, uh, I want to say it was Matt Malpass, John Lundin. I think they were his assistants at the time. The final version is awesome. It's much more refined than than the version that I made, which is another thing because uh, one of my buddies was like, like, oh, dude, you know, your, your version is so much better. And, and I was like, no, like, you can't even get into that mindset because like the version that they chose of that song is objectively the correct version that was released. There's a reason for why it was picked. Yeah, because I could be like, oh, you know, mine had so much more dynamics and all this stuff. But like, you can't get into that sort of ego. You just have to sort of, you have to have the philosophy that, you know, the song comes first. And it's, I've had, you know, some projects where I'll do, you know, programming or orchestration and it ends up being, you know, super low in the mix or cut from the song. And, and you kind of just, again, the song comes first. And like, it'll still be something where like I get my name on the song, but like, it's not like, oh, here's my work front and center. Sometimes there are projects where that's, you know, super cool. I get to hear like, oh, dude, I wrote that. And that's, you know, first thing you hear in the intro, like that's all my stuff. But there's some things where it's like, I'm grateful to have been a part of this, but it's, uh, you know, it's not all about me. It's about, you know, the song and the project and and other stuff was featured more more prominently. So I got to work on the new, a couple songs, you know, recently with Skillet. They just announced a new album. It's coming out in January. And the two songs I worked on ended up getting cut from the record. I talked with, the, you know, the guys I worked with and they're like, oh yeah, we're pretty sure they're going to use them as lead singles for the deluxe re-release, which will be out, you know, 2023, which is kind of a bummer, but because it would have been, you know, Atlantic Records, all this cool stuff. But at the same time, like, Again, with the uh, having your hand in so many pots, like I, like it's like okay, that's you know that's that's kind of a letdown, but I'm still stoked about you know the upcoming Amity Affliction stuff that's going to be released, or the upcoming Sleeping with Sirens or Yellow Wolf or like you know all these other cool projects that that I have in the works. So it's uh, I think you just got to be resilient and kind of it's like if you were, I mean, it's like it's almost like dating. Like if you were to. Like, you just got to see it as, you know, this person maybe isn't the right match. You know, it, it's not like I'm not good enough. It's more just like this. This doesn't work. Yeah, totally. Like, you'll find there's going to be someone else who is a better fit for you. Or there's going to be, you know, there's, you just got to have the mindset. Like, there's, you know, there's a million people out there. There's a million, a million options. And, like, I think you always got to just shove the imposter syndrome out of your head. Because uh, it's something we all deal with. I know even, you know even now to the point where I'm doing music full time and it's it's paying the bills comfortably and I'm working with some some decent sized clients and life is awesome but I had a random random thing where I I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew Callahan he runs you know All Gas No Breaks and Channel 5 it's kind of more of like a not really a meme channel but sort of like he interviews weird people it's kind of like an Eric Andre type got it not familiar but got it he was in Salt Lake a few months ago for this uh this music festival it was like a post Malone thing and there's a video on YouTube of, uh, you know, he kind of documented the whole thing. And he interviewed this 15-year-old kid, freestyle rapping. And, and he's he's actually, you know, pretty damn good for his age. So he posted something about he he needed a, uh, he was looking for a studio in Salt Lake City where he could, you know, record this kid. And I was just like, okay, this is it's kind of random, you know. And my initial thoughts were like, okay, for hip-hop stuff, you know, there's so many people who would do the job better. Like, you know, one of my buddies who owns a studio down here, they, they just worked on Logic's new album. And for hip hop vocal tracking, like, you know, they'd be the first choice. But I just reached out to him and just kind of mentioned, you know, here's some of the stuff I've worked on, blah, blah, blah. And he responded, he's like, do you, you know, do you want to hop on a call? You know, I'd love to hear more about this. 
they ended up going with me. I, I recorded, produced, mixed, mastered the track. You know, it, it turned out great. But I think initially I sort of had the mindset that like, oh, you know, someone else who could do that so much better than me. But you just have to sort of kind of kind of shut that out and, and realize, okay, like Joey Sturgis said this a few years ago where like obviously not 24-7, but like when you're in the moment, when you're like producing, you kind of have to get in this like Kanye mindset of like, yo, I'm the man, I'm the guy, I got this. And just sort of like kind of just have that confidence and not not be an asshole and not just like, you know, go on social media and just, you know, screw all you guys, all this stuff. Like it's more just like you in the moment when you're wearing the hat of this role, you just have to know you're good and and be able to, again, with that first periphery, you know, have a blast song I worked on years and years ago. It was something where I, I told Misha I could do it and I sort of sold it like I was the guy and I was able to do it and I killed it. But it, it's something that you, you almost have to train yourself to kind of just, you know, wear that hat when you need to. Yeah, totally. The whole imposter syndrome thing is very, very real. But uh, I always advise people, just ignore it. It'll happen. It happens to everybody, except for the sociopaths. <laughs> just ignore it. Absolutely. Literally, just ignore it. Yeah. Again, rolling with the punches. I had a buddy of mine who, uh, he had this killer opportunity where he was going to uh, fill in on drums for this really sick artist. Um, he had a bunch of gigs lined up with Download Fest and all this stuff. And then COVID hit. And everything was canceled. All his opportunities kind of went out the window. And it kind of just threw him into this funk where he like, he left LA, he kind of just, you know, threw in the towel with a lot of music stuff. And I kind of just, we had to talk about it and just sort of be like, no, like, you know, you, you know, there's so many other opportunities. You can just kind of, you know, you just got to adapt and adjust. And there's, there's definitely things that are, you know, we've all had, you know, ones that got away and, and situations that are bummers, but you if you're going to be in this industry and if you're going to be, you know, doing this, you know, being your own boss, running your own business, like you have to, you have to roll with the punches and kind of just, like you said, shove out the imposter syndrome, shove out the, uh, like the woe is me stuff and just keep going, you know? Yeah. Cause I mean, it is actually pretty natural to get those feelings. You know, it goes along with that feeling of wanting to improve at things. If you have that feeling of wanting to improve at things and you also recognize how awesome other people are at certain things, it kind of stands to reason that you're going to feel like you're not good enough at times. But that doesn't matter because if people are hiring you, they think you're good enough. There you go. That's all you need in my opinion. Also, the thing about imposter syndrome is by listening to your imposter syndrome, you are making other people's decisions for them. So if you're deciding, I don't belong here, this is too high up for me, that I'm not good enough, you can't accurately judge that. Like Nobody can accurately judge that. So you're basically robbing other people of the chance to make the decision for themselves. That's a good point. You can apply that to anything. Like, you know, we've all had the getting in our head when you're, you know, about to post something on social media and you're like, oh, what if, what if this is dumb? What if that cap the caption is dumb? What if no one likes this? But like, if you don't post it, you're, like you said, you're robbing everyone else of, of making that decision. And for all you know, it could do like, you, you never know what's going to hit and what's going to be a success or what's going to flop. I just had a random opportunity where I worked with a singer, uh, Peyton Parrish, and he did this cover of the song from Mulan. It's like, I'll make a man out of you, but did the sort of like metal version of it. And initially I was thinking, okay, this is this is cheesy, but it's fun, cool, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll work on this. It's awesome. And then I was uh, having a studio session a couple months later, and one of my clients shows me this random video, and I hear that 
in the background of this TikTok video. And I'm like, wait, I worked on that. Like, what, like what's going on? And he's like, are you serious? Like, dude, this is like blowing up all over TikTok. It, uh, I reached out to the, the producers I worked with and they're like, it's got like, you know, millions of views. It's, it's blown up. We're, uh, we're releasing the single. It's, it's on schedule to be, you know, hit number one on the rock charts. It ended up, you know, getting number one. So they're, they're sending a, a, you know, billboard plaque for this random Mulan cover for this, this guy, just because it went viral on TikTok. You never know what's going to, I definitely did a good job with that. Since then, I've, I've sort of done the approach that like, you treat every project with the respect that a million people are going to hear it. Even if it's for some smaller artist, you never know who's going to blow up. You never know who's going to, you know, get some opportunity, especially nowadays with the, uh, I think traditionally the music industry used to be more get signed to a label, get a record deal, get your songs on Octane Radio. And it was kind of more of like a predictable formula. Whereas now it's like, especially TikTok, it's kind of the wild west as far as like business strategy. There's, you know, like whoever could have predicted some of the songs that are trending currently, which have affected the radio charts now. So it's just, I think it's just being open to opportunities and just respecting every opportunity that you give, regardless of how big the client is currently or how prestigious this opportunity seems. Yeah. I actually have known people who will treat different clients differently. And I don't mean that in like, uh, you know, understanding their client and having a different approach. I mean, this band is smaller, so fuck their deadline. I'm working on this other thing, which is really not cool. I really don't like that kind of behavior, but I've seen it many, many times. Then my thoughts are, why would you commit to both of these at the same time if you're not going to be able to follow through on both of them at the same time? If you're going to commit to something, you have to give it 100% regardless of the size of the of the project. Definitely makes sense. Yeah. And if the project is something where you don't feel it's worth it, like not big enough, then don't accept it. Totally. Yeah. If it's something where, again, those three values of, you know, will it pay the bills? And regardless of how big the client is, it's something that will look good on my portfolio as far as like music that I am proud of the finished result. And then also, is it, you know, a client that's not a pain in the ass? Yeah. There's definitely been some gigs where I have turned down work recently or send them to, you know, a friend producer. There's no shortage of, of people who are, who are looking for work. So if it's something that's not a good fit for you, you know, there's always going to be someone you can send them to. And, and a lot of times that, that will drum up more business for you. Cause you'll, you know, start a good relationship with, with someone else, you know, another fellow producer, they'll probably start sending you stuff and not just in this industry, but I think as creatives or freelancers, we kind of get into this, uh, this scarcity mentality of like, I got to take on everything that comes my way because it's a lot of feast and famine. And, you know, what if next month dries up and who knows what? But I've got so many quotes that I, uh, I'm pulling out. But there's something I read that was essentially saying that you should only take on projects that you know you're going to kill it with or something like that. But it was, uh, again, I mean, and that almost kind of contradicts the uh, say yes and learn how to do it later. But again, back to only taking on things that you know will be within your skill set and within your capabilities, even if it's something that you haven't done, but something that you know you would be able to do. Like I've got a buddy who recently he's just completely specialized in mastering. He's a killer mixer, producer, engineer, but he's only doing mastering nowadays. And uh, he's gotten a ton more work just being hyper-specialized in that. And I think I've, I've uh, like I'll, I'll take on certain projects, whether it's, you know, engineering or or scoring or, or stuff, but like I, I've definitely built more of a name for myself in the metal scene, just specializing on, you know, programming 
textural stuff, like orchestration, strings, that type of stuff. And just uh, people know you as like, okay, that's, you know, that's the guy he's, he's, this is what he's good at. And it's, it's almost like, uh, like if you want to go to, if you want to get, if you want to go out and get a really good steak, are you going to, you know, are you going to go to a steakhouse or are you going to go to a buffet? And, uh, you know, chances are the steakhouse is going to have, you know, killer quality. The buffet is probably going to have decent steak, but it's, uh, they're working on a, on a million other things. So it's not going to be the same quality. Go to the specialist. Yeah. Go to the specialist. And within reason, like you don't want to limit options for your, for yourself. Just, you know, it's, it's a balance. I, I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this. Like you, you want to be specialized, but you also want to be capable with a few other things just to kind of keep yourself afloat. That probably all sounds like it's contradicting itself. I don't think it is. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, def I definitely don't think it is. I mean, you should have a specialty, but you should also have a broad skill set because reality is going to present you with things that uh, don't just fit this one narrow focus. And if you're successful enough and fortunate enough to only work on things that fit your one preferred focus, cool. Life doesn't always work that way. And uh, sometimes getting to the point where you can just focus on that main thing you got to do a lot of other things to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Randy, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Thanks for, for having me on. Anytime. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.